At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, It becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity to present special guest Sonia Lewis to the show today. It all started at the age of seven when she refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance because she didn't see liberty and justice for all, especially for those who looked like her, her family and her community. Earning degrees in history and psychology, a master's in education, and teaching for nearly 20 years were all fundamental to the vision of Ascribe Educational Consulting LLC and Edify Humanity 501c3 organization. From age seven to now, at the center of Sonia's motivation is humanity and belonging. She's on a mission to rectify the harm and oppressions of racism and is unflinching in asking the tough questions, facing uncomfortable truths, and building on equity-driven outcomes. Acknowledging that we all have perpetuated norms based on conditionings from a white supremacy lens has divided our collective ability to stand in solidarity rather than compete in oppression and divide one another. In building a future that is anti-racist, humanity must matter and equity needs to be at the center of the equation. There's no better time than the present to fight for the most marginalized and disenfranchised by a system with the intent, with the intent to deny access to wealth, life, liberty, and justice. Get ready for a conversation with Sonia Lewis, a mother, wife, influencer, entrepreneur, and all-around unapologetic yet authentic black magical force to be reckoned with. Brace yourself for a true heart to heart for change. It's a great pleasure. I welcome Sonia Lewis to the show. Welcome Thank to the show. You. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you so much. I, I'm very, very excited about being here and, and sharing some information with your platform and your audience. So let's get into it. <laughs> I want to get into you at seven years old. Tell me a little about that. Oh, well, the way I describe seven-year-old Sonia is this very strange um, dichotomy. My, my mother is a Midwestern girl from the projects of Chicago, whose family, um, when the when the Eisenhower era was building freeways all around this country, um, lived in a very 
working class black community where that was the only place in Chicago that they can buy property and, and own homes. And the freeway caused her neighborhood to be demolished. And so her family was then put into projects. And I, as a history major, as a person who just loves history, I did a deep dive into that conversation after having that, finding out that information from my mom that all across this country, that same thing happened to black communities. My dad, on the other hand, is a good old country boy from the state of Texas. All of his brothers and sisters were born at uh, birth at home. And he is a twin. And he, even when he was a kid, picked cotton in cotton fields because that was still a thing as a you know financial institution in the state of Texas. Both of them migrated to California, you know, and, and a love affair quickly ensued. They got married and then they had me. My dad is also a Vietnam vet. And soon after he was discharged from the Vietnam War, um, he was one of five Black um, um, officers who were selected to integrate the local police department. And he, the way he tells the story, similarly to my mother telling the story of her neighborhood being demolished, is that I took this as an opportunity and as a possibility of changing the dynamics between the Black community and law enforcement. And this was in the 70s, mind you. This was, I am also a product of um, Oakland, California, which is the, at the height in the center of the Black Panther Party in the 70s. And so my mother would attend these Black Panther movement um, meetings. My father was now a police officer with the Richmond Police Office, um, Department and his superior officers were asking him to go in and spy on Black Panther meetings. And he was like, I'll go to some meetings, but I'm not going to bring you back intel. And the way he tells the story is very soon after, in less than a two-year period, he and the other four Black officers who were hired on to integrate the department were fired. And the reason he was fired was because of insubordination. And so I lay that out as a visual of what I saw in, in my home. I also remember at age seven, hearing my father come home, telling my mom while they thought I was asleep, um, I, I had to go to the bathroom this night and I overheard them having a conversation about one of my cousins who was brutally killed by the police department. And when he was killed, now this is an individual, even as an adult, he was probably had the brain capacity of a, maybe a 10 year old at best. He was like one of my best cousins. I loved hanging out with him. He had the best smile and the best laugh. And he was this big giant. So he was super strong, but he was like, he, he acted like, you know, us kids. And so he was the best person to get piggyback rides from and swing around and take us to the park. We didn't have snow in California in the community I grew up in. So we would make grass angels. That was just the things that I remember about him. But I remember vividly overhearing this conversation about him being shot in the middle of the street. He had locked himself out of my aunt's home and he was in his underwear. And the neighbor called the police because they knew that he suffered from mental health issues. And they warned the police, he does, he's not a threat, but he just needs help. It looks like he's, you know, getting into a manic, you know, state. And they, you know, he didn't understand stop and comply, those kind of things, because he literally was functioning at a 10 year old's um, level and they shot and they killed him. And so with all of those pieces, I went to school one day, I was in the second grade and I said, I'm not standing up for the Pledge of Allegiance because that last line and I'm a very literal person. <laughs> 
Liberty and Justice for All. And we had just done an assignment about the Statue of Liberty. So I had a good grasp of what liberty meant. And I asked my parents, hey, what does justice mean? You know, and it didn't match to me. And so if a seven-year-old Sonia can realize that these things are not congruent, I think that all kids and psychologists and doctors have studied young minds. And we, we know that between the ages of three to five, children know right from wrong and they understand difference. And so that began my journey for equity. As you just described that, I'm going to be honest with you. I had to hold back my emotions right now. It's so hard to hear the stuff you describe because, I mean, for me, I grew up in New Jersey and in that part of the area, we had little bubbles. You know, we only had a few African-American students that I was friends with in my elementary school, high school growing up. I didn't, I went to college in Tampa and the first time I, I kind of got a, a whiff of what it's like to deal with some type of racism directly was when I had an African-American roommate freshman year. Mm -hmm. and I had a girl tell me, how are you going to live with someone who's black? And I was so shocked. I was like, wait, what? Because my mom taught in an inner city school for 27 yeah. years in Patterson, New Jersey. So yeah. I was raised, I'm colorblind. That's why I wear black a lot. I'm colorblind in real life. But like when it comes to race issues, I'm truly colorblind in that respect. And I get so aggravated by what we're seeing ever since you know, 2016 and on the, 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 the terrible situations that have occurred. George Floyd impacted me on resonated with me such a level that I was like, what can I do? I went to some of those protests. I'm like, what can I do? And I decided to open my platform up. And this is probably one of the most of consequence interviews since that decision last year. I've had some other ones, but I'm so excited to share with you because look, when we look at liberty and justice for all, you're right. We're not equal right. yet in society. It's a fact. It, it, society has not recognized us as equals, even though right. humanity, we are equals. We're all spiritual. And from Absolutely. a spiritual point of view, we're all spirit in our bodies, like the Cadbury egg is how I look at it. If we're all made up of the same spirit and we have different shells, what does that matter, right? right. Let, me, let me get focused here because I know we only have some, so much time, but I, I know from personal experience, we can't ignore the fact that systemic racism exists in our country, all sectors of our country, banking, mortgages, school, housing, every, everything you can think of. And so what I want to ask you first is, what do you think from your point of view as an educator, we could do to change the structural racism that has existed within our educational system, which has impacted our students and our future? Absolutely. It's one of the things when I approach and am working with an organization, especially in the education space, is that I ask three core questions. One, can we acknowledge that racism systemically, structurally, and institutionally negatively impacts a certain different demographic of students. And if a person can say yes to that, let's ask the next question. Can we acknowledge that in the arena of education that the system, institution, and structure has policy and procedure and norms that negatively impact Black students? Most people say yes, right? And then I say, let's get to the core of who we are. Can you acknowledge as an individual that you have perpetuated by way of being a part of this education system that you have already acknowledged negatively impacts a certain demographic, that you are perpetuating the systemic institutional and structural um, racism? And people get challenged by that. People get uncomfortable by that. But then I reassure people that this isn't about blame and shame, that really and truly this is about acknowledging that the, the system works in a certain kind of way. And let me, this is a big end, like with capital A, capital N, capital D, even people of color 
even a dark-skinned woman like myself, who has a variety of intersections that make me more marginalized than other people, that even I have perpetuated the system, the institution, and the structure of racism. And I say that because I've been in the in the education in in the educator position. I say that because I have six black boys who I've sent to school, and a part of me has been told as a parent, "Oh, send your kids to school to do this." And when the teacher calls home, you know, you believe the teacher and you punish your child. And so I would just tell people to take a, a step back and look in the mirror. If you are in the education arena and you are educating students who don't necessarily look like you, use your privilege to advocate on their behalf. And so it's, it's a challenge, but it's definitely possible to make that change. And so I just welcome, I curate safe space. That is you know, what I say is unique about my um, business is that we are about curating safe space. We're gonna have the challenging conversations and I lead people through, um, to, I provide people with tools and, and activities and, and um, just skill sets to recognize when they're triggered and not to shut down, right? Because uncomfortability is the only place that we can actually foster that change and root up, you know, the ugliness that comes along with um, the collateral damage of racism. And so that I think is something that people have been afraid of um, and we have to face it. We have to face it together. Interesting, everything you just said. One of the things I am gonna share, I've been waiting for the demographics of our country to change and catch up where we have a minority majority of the country for the first time ever. And I think that's gonna happen within the next 20, 30 years. Oh yeah. What I never expected was Donald Trump. Yeah. And I never expected Trumpism. I never expected Steve Bannon. I don't mean to name all these people, but right. I never expected us to slide backwards in such a way where we are right now in terms, and, and maybe it's not sliding backwards. Maybe it's just ripping the mask off of society and exposing the, the true ugliness of what we are confronted with that has never left us since the inception of our country. Absolutely. And so from my vantage point, as I flip through the channels, obviously you could tell that I'm not a Republican from the way I'm talking, I'm a moderate, but I get so aggravated when I flip through the channels and my remote gets stuck on Fox News. And I see for the few seconds I'm on there that they're making critical race theory sound like it's, you know, Mein Kampf yeah. to indoctrinate our future. And, and I get so aggravated because I'm like, wait a minute, this is not anything what it's about. And they're, they're just making it such a divisive thing. And I, I want to ask you, since you're here and we could discuss this, can you explain to our audience what critical race theory is all about and why is there a segment of our society that's terrified of it? Absolutely. So let me start by saying that what critical race theory isn't. Critical race theory is not an approach that is going to have teachers in classrooms teaching white students that they are racist. That's what it isn't. It's not going to teach other students of, of, of color to hate. That's what it isn't. What it is, is a look at policy, procedures, laws that have negatively impacted certain demographics in this country. And, and I can name off like so many, Jim Crow was a policy. It was a procedure, was way, a way of life, life, right? Grandfather clauses were a policy. It was like, if your grandfather couldn't read, you can't vote. Like what kind of sense does that me make after supposedly the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Gra um, policies like the Chinese Exclusion Act, 
policies like when we went into war one and um, Japanese citizens were put into internment camp policies like um, um, yeah, World War II. Sorry, World War II. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, World okay. War II. Um, policies like when the Filipinos were isolated in their communities. So we have so many policies that specifically target certain demographics to prevent them from the access to. And so I say that there are five things that we all rely on to a certain degree. One is housing and shelter. And if a community as a collective has been prevented from getting home loans, and so I always say redlining, and I can give you proof to what redlining looked like, or for the example that my mother and her family experienced when the freeway system was built to connect all of our states, right? A wonderful idea, but every time that that freeway was built in a major city, it demolished a Black community. And so think of that. Think about Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think just after this one year, this 100 year anniversary of Tulsa, um, there were Republican pundits who were on Fox News saying, why are people exacerbating this? Why is this coming out now? No, you had survivors from Tulsa who have been t telling the same story for 100 years. So we can't just dismiss this. And so it is a critical race theory is a look at policy from a legal lens so that we can then change the policy. And again, I go back to telling people that we all have been conditioned to accept this as the norm. Here's the good thing that I tell people. We can, if we say all in like liberty and justice for all, we have to be willing to share. We have been so bamboozled to believe that we are living from a state of um, deficit and that we things are scarce which they're not. We have an abundance of resources in America. We saw that really and truly during this pandemic. And that should be proof in and of itself that our government can write checks to people who typically wouldn't get checks and we can do so in an equitable way. And so that is the reality. I say that the pandemic really and truly exposed the pandemic of racism. It pulled back, like you said, it just pulled back the mask. It's a scar. It's like an old Band-Aid you tried to put on a womb that really and truly required surgery. Germany, you know, not to use them as an example, but they said, we are never going to have a Holocaust again. And the only way that they were able to be successful in that is teaching and reteaching and reteaching that this is what negatively came out of that period. We're not gonna go there again. What America has done is never acknowledge slavery, the system of racism and how white supremacy has impacted this country. And so when we get to that point of true recognition, true honest apologeticness, true reparations, then we can move forward and there can be some equity in this country. Interesting as you say all these points because it's a lot to unpackage. It is. You know, for me, before I keep pointing to George Floyd, but before George, George Floyd's murder, I, it, unless you're in the middle of it or you're forced to see it, you don't necessarily pay attention, right? I hate to say that we live in a soundbite society, but we do. And what happened with George Floyd last year, I think, made a lot of us take pause and horror and look at the situation and say, oh, my God, where are we living? What Absolutely. country are we in? Like you're an educator, you know, an esteemed educator of 20 years. I'm an attorney. I became an attorney because I bought into the system, just like you said. Right. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in justice for all. But we're not there yet. And, yeah. you know, it's it, it sucks. I'm going to be blunt. It sucks that we live in a country that we talk and brag about 
as the best democracy on this planet is what we, we grew up with. I was born in the 70s and 80s during the Cold War when that kind of stuff was spoon fed to us every single morning. And we're in 2021 and we're looking at stuff and not much has moved in the needle of race relations to improve equality in our country. And so I'm looking at this and you're describing critical race theory. You know what I hear critical race theory is? It's the truth. It's looking at the system and saying, you know what? This system was created 400 years ago and everything about it is flawed. We need to change it, revamp it and do something different. And now's the time. Absolutely. I don't see anything more than that in terms of my opinions, at least. I see it as something that when you look at education, education is designed so that we look at things critically. Absolutely. The word critical race theory. Why wouldn't we look at it critically if it's 400 years and nothing's been working to get everything to work? Absolutely. I think because we know that the founding fathers, all of whom were white men, really and truly were interested in protecting their interests and the generation of, generations of people who would come behind them, they, they were only able to see the lens of themselves. And so I, 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 I have mixed feelings about, you know, being a historian and knowing that they all only saw themselves and it's hard to see others in the process when you already have systems that disenfranchise or um, doesn't see humane, humanity in certain people because they were not considered human. And so part of me says, from my psychological um, training says, okay, that makes sense. You're in, you're in it to protect people who look like you, right? But where does that thing trigger in you when you see people who are doing the work, who are the foundation builders of this country? I say that black hands, black bodies and black breasts made America what it is today. Had it not been for black hands and black bodies and black breasts, we would not have succeeded in the capitalistic colonializing manner in which we were able to conquer the world. And so there's a fear factor that we have to you know, talk about. And that fear factor for particularly, and, and I don't you know, mean to offend Jason, but no. particularly for white men, it's, it's, it's a crucial, Pivotal, we're at a, you know, a crossroads at this moment. Like either you can see other people as different and worthy, or you can be so caught up on self that you are only willing to protect the privilege and things that you've been able to get generation after generation and build upon that. And so I understand the fear factor. And what I ask of people who come from that space of privilege is to just see the other side of the coin. And when you see the other side of the coin, it's like I do privilege walks when I'm doing trainings and I, you know, ask questions like, you know, if your parents own their home, stand up. You know, if your parents parents had to let a bill go to make sure that you got food on the table, like a cell phone bill didn't get paid or the electricity didn't get paid just to make sure that you had food on the table, stand up. If you're the first person in your family to go to college, stand up and having your colleagues see the different people who stand up. Um, it's an eye-opening experience. But then we have to get into conversations like about microaggressions and implicit biases and um, gaslighting because these are the tentacles of racism, right? These are the norms that come into the workplace that cause people to say, did that person really just ask me, can they touch my hair, right? 
And and I say that and I can laugh because I've had that as an experience. Like I haven't had, time. I'm a little jealous. I haven't and, asked, I haven't right. had anybody ask me to touch my hair. Right? <laughs> you know? But it's a thing. It's terrible. And, and so, you know, I look at, you know, local politicians here, even in the state of California and, and the Crown Act. One of my good friends um, was the author of the Crown Act. And then that, that started to happen all over this country. And I was like, oh my God, we are now really and truly able to have a conversation about these are the things that you have microaggressed. Don't show up to work with an Afro or natural hair, but everyone, Jason, you can show up with your bald head and it's okay, but I can't show up with my natural luxurious texture of my hair or braids or dreadlocks. Black folks have been criminalized for having dreadlocks, but when a, a, a white or non-Black person shows up in, in dreadlocks, it's they're exotic and you know they're like, oh, you're so cool and you're so Rastafarian, you know, you're so island. But when a black person shows up, the stereotypes begin to kick into place. Is this person a thug? Are they a criminal? Are they here to hustle me? And so we have to look at those kind of things. I have been told all my life that you're just an angry black girl and you're loud and you're ghetto. And so for, I can remember being in high school and was like, we're loud because you don't hear us. And so just hearing things like that, I think opens people's eyes to saying, I get it. I get it. And yes, I'm afraid, right? But we're not, I'm not. And I know that most people, if people who are from the black community were here to take anything from anyone, we would have done it by now. Like, you yeah. know, let's be honest, like there's been 400 years plus of oppression based on the policies of this country. If black folks were wanting to get back at this system, we would have burnt this country down by now. So now that you know that we're, that's not the intention, <laughs> Just be equitable in the approaches going forward. Don't be afraid of big words like reparations. You know, you paid reparations to Jewish folks who came to America and we were not a part of the Holocaust. You paid reparations to the native and indigenous community. You paid reparations to uh, the um, Japanese um, folks who were um, impacted by the internment camp. Pay black folks reparations. Don't be afraid of those things. Interesting you bring up reparations because I think that's also, and this is the thing too, looking at things going forward in our society, it's like, our, I'm just going to say this, at what point are white male in our, white males in our society going to be able to take off the lens of what they've looked at for the last 400 years yeah. and finally say, you know what, it's time for changes. We've got we've to accept changes in our society. It's important that we have change because you can't create a, a system where one minority, which will be white, white males in the future, holding on to all the power and trying to keep the majority of our democracy from participating in elections and voting and, and being able to be expressive. Like to me, that's just not going to work. And when you look at our, when you look at the history of our country, even in the last 40 years, my, my short lifetime, I'm 45, you see glimpses, like, you know, things pop in like Rodney yeah. King, we went from like Rodney King in the 90s. I, I kind of saw that and, and, and looked at it, was horrified, and then it got kind of moved on. And then the, the officers didn't get uh, you know, tried. They, they, were, they were not found guilty. And then we went from Rodney King. And so there's just so many things. And then, oh, Barack Obama got elected. Yay, we got a black president, right? And then it's like, but nope, that's not, our work's not done yet. Look how much more needs to be done at this point now. And what upsets me is looking at our government. We can't even pass laws that are common sense. Common sense. Common sense. 
Absolutely. What, we, are at this, we are at this crossroads where I'm asking folks, let's do an audit. So I live in the great state of California. It is the fifth largest economy in the world. We were able recently to pass some legislation that was going to hold law enforcement organizations accountable for their behavior, right? That was one piece of, and, and, and you can look this up. It's, it's nickname is Stefan Clark um, Law, which happened to be one of my... Um, extended family members who was murdered by Sacramento Police Department in my uncle's backyard while he was holding a cell phone. Um, and this law now makes law enforcement office uh, departments, you have to give, make public record anytime uh, an officer is involved in a um, officer-involved shooting or excessive force case. So that's one piece. The other piece is that you are going to now, as an organization, make those public records so that when an officer is let go, they can't just go to the next department and get hired and, and make the same kind of abuses. I am saying that we need to do two things. One, we need to do an audit because we know that excessive force with, and I'm just going to use the example of the Sacramento police department, which is indicative of most police departments in the state of California. It's, it was established in 1872. The excessive force Policy was established in 1872. <laughs> it was just changed and came, went into law in 2020. How many years have we lived under this excessive force from 1872? So I'm saying that all departments across this country need to do an audit to bring their policies up to date with the whatever the demographic of people who are in that community. So we need to be culturally responsive, culturally aware, and just respectful of, you know, the intersections that are present in our community. The second thing that I am very much an advocate for is that law enforcement officers, I used to sell insurance and I had to carry a insurance bond of some sort so that if I, you know, did some kind of malpractice and I misrepresented my insurance company, it, my insurance would, I'm rep, in, you get what I'm saying. Now, practice insurance insurance, like a lawyer, like a doctor, right? I think that law enforcement officers need to carry some kind of insurance so that cities and municipalities can stop footing the bill for bad behavior. And what happens when you use your insurance? The insurance goes up. Think about a bad driver. You get into X amount of accidents, your insurance rates go up and then you don't get coverage. And so if an officer doesn't have coverage, they cannot be a cop. I think that that's two ways of addressing this, this problem. The third way I think that we can address this problem is taking away um, out of uh, the immunity that qualified immunity, yeah, immunity piece um, that goes along with it. And then the policeman's bill of rights. If we look at just those things, we can look at officers being human, just like us officers walking the beat and taking a vested interest in the communities that they serve and treating people with dignity and respect. They'll be accountable for their actions. Absolutely. They don't, they're not going to have a get out of jail free card, no pun intended. Absolutely. They think that they could kill somebody, hurt somebody, name somebody. And it's just a, a standard day at the office for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I look at that. And, and from my vantage point, looking at where we are, um, Removing qualified immunity to me, it, it just makes sense. What, why are we protecting people who are killing people and they're using it in such a way where the cameras and cell phones are showing the truth? Where maybe even four years ago, 
you know, things get covered up, we would never know. There's just an automatic kind of, oh, well, you know, I have a, a college friend who I talk to and he always says, well, policemen are in the line of fire and they have to make life and death decisions every day. And if somebody came at them and looked threatening, then this person has the right to act. And then I'm like, yeah, but did you see the videotape? Yeah. Did you see, did you see, you know, the, the knee on the neck for nine and a half minutes? Like, I mean, you can't, you can't have that narrative anymore. I think that's what our society is realizing is that the narrative that was spoon fed to us for so many years about having to respect the authority and, you know, police, I'm not saying that not all police officers have life and death decisions they have to make and they've right. got to enforce the law. I respect all of that. And if people act out of line, they need to be put in their bounds. But when you're talking about police officers that are bad apples, right. that needs to be addressed immediately. It needs to be rectified immediately. Those people do not need badges. They need to be kicked out of the force across Absolutely. the entire country. How do we do that? How do you, you think know, we do that? It, it, it's, it's a challenge. It's an uphill battle. I think that now as folks are gathering in community and not necessarily being the same voices from the black community coming and, and yelling at city council meetings and board of supervisor meetings and, and town hall meetings, being the same faces. Like I've had, I know that I've had a target on my back being a member of and leader in the Black Lives Matter movement here in my local town. I know that I've walked around for over the past, almost a, uh, almost a decade now, about seven, eight years being associated with Black Lives Matter. Um, I know that my children have had, as they've become adults and are driving and, and working in community, um, have had a target on their back by association of mom and, and her activism in, in town. And so all I'm asking is that we begin to analyze and reflect on the harm that's coming when you pull, when you know that you are pulling people over because of the color of their skin or the neighborhood that they're driving in um, and looking at those, those things. Um, but you're right. It is getting rid of those few bad apples. Do I believe that all cops are bad? I don't think that individually all cops are bad, but I believe because there's a system that is corrupt, that you are working for a corrupt system, it some at some degree or another, it corrupts you as an individual. And so that's that thing, you know, you have to weigh, weigh the good and the bad. I really want people to really understand why there is a conversation around this nation about defunding the police and where we as a community can really use those resources to fight things that are at the core of crime. If we even look at that, there are two things that I believe that can fight crime. Quality education, regardless of the zip code, regardless of the tax, you know, brackets and, and base, quality education across the board. And then two, poverty. People don't want to just commit crime. People typically, let, let me give you some statistics here in California, at least. 70% of people who are in local jails have not been convicted of, the, of a crime. They just can't afford to bail themselves out. 70%. 90% of people who visit our local county jails have a stay of less than nine days. That means that most of those 70% of cases eventually either get thrown out or there's no basis for the case and it gets dropped. Think about the impact of that. Because we do, I, I work with organizations at the grassroots level where we look at cop watching, court watching, and being, being actual community advocates. And we have conversations with these people. They are losing their jobs. They are losing their homes. They are losing, you know, just their livelihood for that nine day stay in a county jail. 
So imagine the impact. So now I've lost, I've lost my apartment. I've lost my job because I didn't show up for nine days. And I'm going to boss man saying, Hey, I was, you know, there was an error and I got pulled over for this. And can you please give me my job back? And the boss is like, no, I'm sorry. You know, I can't. And so people then have to, unfortunately, have to turn to ways in which they feel like they have to get over on the system. And so, again, I was alluding to those five systems that we all rely on. Housing. We rely on quality education. We rely on access to health care. We rely on employment. And we rely on our voice being heard at the voting polls. And I would, I, I have proof there are laws and there are instances that say that all five of those areas have been negatively impacted if you're a person of color, specifically Black folks. And so not only are we talking about racism against people of color, we're talking about anti-Blackness. So, and there's a distinction that we really and truly have to make when we talk about racism, because there's a deeper part of that when we look at the spectrum from white to Black that there are huge, big, gaping, like, divides. And I can look at it and have had conversations with people in the Latinx community, people in the API community, where that anti-Blackness comes into play, only because the, the society has conditioned folks, even though we're all part of that community of color, to have that divide, where it's pitted, one community is pitted against another. It's the other aspects, us versus them, scapegoating, all those aspects of things. Right. It's terrifying to think that we still have that to deal with. Absolutely. I, um, I want to ask you, and, and you mentioned this, but I want to ask you if you could explain the difference, between, the difference between ally, comrade, and abolitionist. One of my favorite conversations. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so I, you know, after George Floyd last year, 2020, I, I'm not big on like New Year's resolutions, but I'm big on reflecting on the year. And so I was reflecting last December and I was saying, what am I done with? You know, from here, I'm setting new boundaries and new expectations. And because I do a lot of grass work, grassroots work um, in my community, I said, you know what? Allyship is dead. Because allies typically are those individuals who will go back to the comfort of their homes after they've participated in a march, after they've thrown up a couple of hashtags on their social media, taken some pictures, you know, of their engagement, and even have thrown dollars at a cause, right? But because they're so comfortable, they don't have to live this life. And so an ally to me is like almost at the bottom of the totem pole of, you know, moving the progressive lens and conversation. Um, a comrade to me is someone who's going to do the work right alongside me and will not only use their voice and their platform to make sure that they are fighting and advocating for people who have been othered, silenced and um, erased. But I'm looking for abolitionists and abolitionists are those people who are recognizing that the system is, is, is systemically, institutionally and structurally flawed. And they are going to use their privilege to speak up. And, and an accomplice is someone who is going to put their physical lives in the line of fire to protect someone else. And so I appreciate an abolitionist. I appreciate a comrade and I appreciate uh, an accomplice who's willing to get their hands dirty and say that I will, I have friends literally in community, Jason, I can name some, they don't want to, you know, they don't want the kudos and the accolades, but I can name them and say, Hey, Trina, I know that you would stand in front of the cops because she's done it. Right. 
She will take her 115 pound body stand in front of me. We've been at demonstrations where she's like, nope, I'm protecting you, right? Because we know that if the gun gets aimed at someone, it's typically going to be aimed at a black body. And that's the unfortunate realization. But she's an accomplice. She's a comrade. She's an abolitionist to the core. Um, and, and I just think that ally has just been so overrated and so overused that people have to step up their game. I hope at least after George Floyd and the trial that um, folks are realizing this is not enough. And so that's where I challenge folks, get out of that comfort zone. There are ways in which you can use your privilege to benefit others. Ways to, I say this, I, I am a black woman who's been married to the same man for over 20 years. My children have grown up in the two parent home. We have two, sometimes three incomes. We drive multiple cars. That's a point of privilege. So I use my privilege to protect other people who don't have those things. So when I vote, I'm voting for that single mother who is trying to work two and three jobs to make sure she puts food on the table for her children. I am voting when I go to the voting polls for people who are from the LBGTQ plus community who maybe don't have the same rights and access to medical care. I'm voting for foster youth who when they age out of the foster system, they don't have resources and 80% of foster youth end up in prison. Like we have to look at these kind of numbers and the data and be able to say that we're creating prog programs and policies that are going to stop this from happening. I am voting for equity in education. And what that looks like is closing the school to prison pipeline. And that to me is using my privilege to then protect other people. I think it's remarkable that you are as engaged. And I appreciate that you're as engaged as you are. And I know there's millions, hundreds of thousands, millions of people out there just like you that are unsung yeah. heroes, right? And from my vantage point, I think the fact that we can have a dialogue about this on a Friday <laughs> in July, cross country should say something about the importance of it. Uh, being able to, to look across the table and find other people who may not have been engaged in the past, right? White males. How do we get them into the fold? How do we get the people who are unaware, but they, you know, I have friends from high school and college who they applaud, they applaud me for going to the, to the protest, but they're like, at what point are you going to be done with that? And I'm like, done with, done, done with what, what are you talking about? What have I done with? I am aware of something that's been shown to me as a, as a gross injustice. There's not something you're done with until the system itself changes. If it's going to happen in our lifetime, which we need to shoot for. Absolutely. You know, that's a conundrum. That's a, a, um, a tricky part of this conversation that I have not necessarily wrapped my entire brain around um, the, the possibility of where that change comes from, right? And, and particularly with white men, that is one of the hardest groups and demographics that in having conversations. Now, I, I will tell you that I have white male friends who are so down for the cause. And just like Trina, I have a, a, a friend named Mike in community. He's like, um, no, not today. And Mike will do things like, Mike is a professor. And Mike, even though he's very adamant about his political stance and his role in community, Mike will be that undercover person who if we are planning a, um, an event or um, an action, 
and we need someone in the background to go and spy out, you know, get intel <laughs> and, and, you know, create routes for us so that we can, you know, successfully pull this off. Mike is that person in the background where he can then put on his suit and go to work. But in the background, he's doing things that will, if, if the police came knocking at his door, <laughs> they're going to be like, where were you on this night and at this time, you know, and it's unfortunate that we have to create um, channels like, you know, um, folks use on their cell phones, these, these um, 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 chat channels and apps to keep their stuff private as they organize. It's a shame that we have to do those kind of things to make sure that people won't stop us from making the impact. Um, and so it's very hard. I will tell you that last summer in particular, mm. I was on a Facebook, um, in a Facebook group and there was a white, this was a um, Sacramento Moms for Resistance. And they were mostly white women. And this one woman wanted to justify why the woman in New York City had called the police on the black guy in Central Park when he was bird watching. And she told him, he told her to put a leash on her dog. And so a lot of these women and non-black women of color were like really going in on her. And I made a comment in the group and I said something like, you can't justify racism. And she was, you know, really um, butthurt about her response and her white fragility came out to a high degree. She was like, I'm not racist. I said, you don't have to be racist to perpetuate racism. And so that's, you know, the thing that people don't connect the two. Racism is a system, racists are individuals. And so 90% of the time, we're not, a, there's not an issue about who's the racist in the room. We know them. They, they, they come up and they are very proud about being a racist. Most people are unintentionally perpetuating racism. And, and that's just not white folks, mind you. Okay. So with that conversation, it led me to create a four-part webinar series that I titled, and I thought it was funny at the time, just, you know, as a jab of humor that I titled, white woman, you might be racist if dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I pay for a Zoom platform. I can get a hundred people in a Zoom. My first, that first part of that series, I had 175 women paid wanting to get into that conversation um, for a hundred spaces. They paid $50 to be there. We did four parts. The fourth one, we had about 65. So yes, we had a little bit trickle off throughout the process planning and timing and con, you know, conflicts of schedule and things. But of those 65 who stuck it through and, and participated in all um, four parts of that series, one of the things after I did my survey and I said, who else could benefit from this conversation? And hands down, I would tell you like 50% of the women in that group was, I need you to talk to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> And so I wanted to get my friends like Mike and Rob, who are like my comrades in the street to say, like, how can we pull this off? And we did. We weren't we were very trepidatious about would it be like right now in that moment last year? I don't think that we would have been successful. But now that it's been a year of pandemic exposing more and more things around racism, we might in 2022 actually be able to have a very vulnerable crucial, critical conversation um, that is layered with first, let's show up courageously um, to have that conversation for white men. But for me as a black woman, it's extremely scary 
Um, that's where my fears um, step in. I will tell you that white men have been the biggest aggressors in my professional career and making sure that I had limited access to being able to move and mobility within um, the ranks in the education um, arena. And so that's one of my fears that I'm willing to step up to the table and get over. I will also tell you that my biggest clients who are led by white men are my most challenging client organizations that I work with. And so not only do I work with organizations in providing anti-racism training, I consider my organization not your typical DEI firm, right? We don't just come in and help you check a box. And we're here to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, have a kumbaya kumbaya moment, and then I go away for the year. My clients know that we're going to have challenging conversations. Um, And when I feel like an organizational leader or a corporate executive is not really ready with the shared language and lingo to do this work, I do some one-on-one coaching to help them get ready. So that that fear factor that is so like it, this is, we are human. We all have some fear. And I understand that that fear is very much legitimate, but I help them through that process with some one-on-one coaching. So that's kind of the the platform and the perspective that I come from when I'm working in community and doing work for free because, you know, this work sometimes just needs to get done. But also when I'm working professionally and I'm um, working with organizations. You sound like a fascinating person to me. I have to just be honest with you. I, I'll call it as I see it. You sound fascinating. I'm a unicorn. I'm an alien. I, I say I'm fascinating. I have to tell you the truth. Like, I, I, I give you kudos. Like, I, I went to the, the five protests I went to, and I, I scratched my head. And I said, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And then my spirit guide said, you have a platform expanded to include this type of stuff. That's what I can yeah. do, uh, aside from other things. Absolutely. But you're, 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 you're living. You went and said, you know what? This isn't liberty and justice for all. And you know what? I'm not going to live in the system that has that. So instead, I'm going to create my own Absolutely. organization that deals with inclusivity and, and, and teaching people the proper way of looking at these issues from the complicated aspect of what it is. But also, things aren't complicated once you start breaking them down, right? Once Absolutely. you start, that's what something like critical race theory to me is looking at something, breaking it down. It's like, it's like going into the grocery store and buying a package. I love these, the, the, the chocolate pop bars, you know, the jello pop bars, you buy them and you look at the package and you're thinking to yourself, okay, these are fudge pops, but then you can look at that package and see all these ingredients and all these things that are in there. That's what I think critical race theory is doing. It's breaking it down to terms so that we can grasp it and understand it. Bit by bit by bit. Bit by bit over 400 years. Absolutely. It's so interesting when we think about, you know, okay, yes, there are people in community who are the unsung heroes. You know, I think about my ancestors, particularly uh, Fannie Lou Hamers, one of my biggest heroes, right? First, I have to just, you know, give homage, pay homage to my mom, who from the day I was born said, you are the most beautiful little chocolate baby. And I'm going to make sure that you know how brilliant you are. And I'm going to support you in everything because that messaging is super important important, especially when a black girl is going to school and she's being told that she's loud and ghetto and obnoxious, right? 
Um, there's an adultification. This is a new word for some people to understand, but black girls particularly are adultified. That means that there's more responsibility. The, our society as a whole thinks that black girls are more mature. And so you take away our childhood. And so that is something that has, is a classic case. I want to lift the names of Darnella Frazier, who's the young lady at age 16, 17, was the one who filmed George Floyd being with the knee on his neck and being murdered, right? Had it not been for her, I don't think that we would have gotten a guilty verdict um, that we just experienced, right, of Darren. I, I don't. I just don't think that it would have happened. I also wanted to say and lift up the name, and I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but very the same day that the verdict came out um, for the Darren um, Chauvin trial, um, there was a young lady um, very not so far from um, where the George Floyd incident took place where she had a knife and there was a community fight that was taking going on and the police officers got out of his um, police car and he shot her and killed her. I will tell you, in tw almost 20 years of teaching, I cannot, I, I'm five foot eight. Most of my years of teaching, I'm probably at a stature of a ranging from about, uh, and, and you know, this is something that a lot of women don't do, but I will tell you from about 160 to 200 pounds, you know, and I have looked big football players in their eyes and have said, look at me focus on my voice. We are not going to fight. I've stopped. I put my physical body in between individuals who have had knives and no one got stabbed. I've put, I've, I've seen guns on school campuses and have stopped people from, you know, having these beef and gang wars. And so if we can, if I, as a black woman teacher without any weapons can stop a fight, you cannot tell me that a police officer with all of the weapons that he had available to him couldn't stop one young lady from with a knife. I just don't believe that. We've seen it time and time again. There's this image of a white guy with a machete coming after a cop that I, you know, play over and over in my mind. There's a young 19-year-old white kid, I believe in Rhode Island, who was running from the cops. He finally got tired and he had a knife. He stabbed the cop and the cops still took out his taser and tased him. So you can't tell me that you can't do these things because we know that there's a difference between the taser and the gun. Um, so just those little things continue to run in my mind of when we talk about what we can't do and who we see as the bigger threat, that there is a policy and procedure that makes cops feel that they fear black bodies. And, and, and let me just also be authentic and honest with you. I 100% believe that it goes back to slavery. The root of law enforcement is a slave watcher overseer and their job was to collect property, runaway slaves. And so mentally we've been conditioned to believe that black bodies are a threat. And that goes back to slavery. Ugh. It's one of those things that when we discuss it, 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 it unsettles me. You can probably see it in my facial reactions as you're saying things because I'm very unsettled by it. And right. it's one of those things that when we look at it and we can talk about it and it, it really is about us doing something. Yeah. Call to action, right? Absolutely. We've got to all do something. We've got to make a conscious effort to make change Absolutely. one by one. One by one, right? Even if it's in our own way. And I like the way you talk about abolitionists because historically we think of abolitionists as the people who, you know, worked to abolish slavery. But abolitionists means, hey, let's finish the rest of the system. Absolutely. We, Absolutely. You know, 
we just got done a one we, we we finished one part of it but there's all these other tree other branches people, have to come down. moving parts absolutely and i'm glad that you mentioned call to action because it's so crucial that be people begin to identify for themselves what can i do to affect change as an individual and no we all can't do everything it i mean it seems so huge of a and complex of a problem i say to people find that thing Find that organization um, where you can be of assistance. If it's a matter of volunteering a couple of times a month, month do that. If it's a matter of um, being a, a, a regular, reoccurring, recycled financial donor too. And I don't care if it's as little as $10 to $100 to $1,000, do that per month, right? It's a matter of showing up at your local um, municipalities and expressing that when you see something wrong going on in your community that is about inequity, injustice, that you being the voice for people who have been silenced, othered, and erased. Because people in your community who you say, oh my God, that's my neighbor, or that's the mailman or the garbage driver, gar garbage truck driver, right? It's the people that you see that you that oftentimes don't have the face, but you can see them. And yes, you might have this perspective of I'm colorblind, but I want you to see my color. I want you to see that I'm a black girl who's had to. And I do. I still consider myself, you know, that that little chick from Oakland who was spunky and feisty. And when I went into Miss Bilyeu's class at age seven and I just stood there with my hands by my side and I didn't say a word and I was looking around and it wasn't a matter of being disrespectful. Uh, but I want you to know that kids all across this country are labeled disrespectful and defiant and um, seen as a problem because educators and administrators don't take the opportunity to have a conversation and understand the walk and the background that they come from. And so therein lies part of the problem. We are disconnected and the divide is by design. <laughs> like, let me say that again. By design, the system doesn't want us to come together. I believe that the Oppression Olympics is something that is a perpetuation of the white supremacist system. Like you're, it's forcing us to say, hey, I've been more oppressed than you have. No, I've been more oppressed than you have. And so we focus on the oppression rather than coming together in solidarity. And so when we come together in solidarity, we are so much stronger together. The, I use my city as an example. During the pandemic, we were able to gather folks regardless of race, gender, you know, age, come together and say, what are our needs? And let's make sure that everybody's needs are together. If you're growing fruits and vegetables in your back backyard, make sure that if you have extras, put them on the corner or bring them to the community center so other people who are lacking food at this moment during a pandemic where we're told to stay in our houses and we don't have the resources and maybe some folks have been laid off, we're coming together to do that cooperative mutual aid for one another. That's what people can do as far as a call to action is concerned. And then if something doesn't feel right in your spirit, like if you see something that happens, be a voice for. I'm reminded of, there. it was a young white guy in Florida. He was in a store and there was a white woman who told a Latinx um, woman, speak Spanish or go, go back to your country of some sort. And he went live and he said, I'm afraid to do this, but I just feel like I have to do this. And he was a young white kid. He couldn't have been more than 25. And he said to himself, in this moment, I feel like this is going to, one, make sure that this woman is safe, 
but to empower me and people who are like me. And I think that that group of people, younger white kids are really saying that we're not going to live the way that our, our ancestors and elders lived. And I'm so appreciative because those are the people who I saw in the streets last year after George Floyd was murdered. It was young, white and Asian and Latinx kids who were just like, this is not going to continue, not on my watch. And I'm so appreciative of them. And that's the future of our society when you think about it, right? That's the future generation. And that's also the future demographic that's going to take over the country in the future. And everyone who's terrified of it in 20, 30 years will probably won't even be around for those people. But yeah. It's going to change no matter what. We just got to keep the pace and, and be steady until that happens. Absolutely. And know that this is not going to change overnight. Like we no. have we have to accept the victories when we get the victories. You got like it. I, I think about sitting in all of those meetings for an entire year, Jason. I promise you, <laughs> with my state officials, um, I... I, I I pay homage to and have such gratitude for Dr. Shirley Weber, who's one of our elected officials here in the state of California, and um, Kevin McCarty, he was another elector. They led that that campaign, right? But they were being attacked by um, the organizations and the unions from um, from law enforcement who were saying, like, we if we do this, what are the impacts? And they both were very steadfast. At the end of the day, yes, was the bill very much watered down. We had to give and take in that moment. And it even came to a point where BLM as an organization had to withdraw our support of the bill because there were pieces of it we were not willing to compromise. But at the end of the day, what was signed into law is a step, step in the right direction. Am I going to say to myself, no, we didn't do a good job. We spent a year, we invested our time. We put, we, you know, we get testimony on at our Capitol over and over again, like why this is important. And we now have a law that is being replicated in other states. And so it's a step in the right direction. It's not where we want to be, but it's a step in the right direction. Well, you know, and that's a valid point you say. We're running low on time. I'll tell you, this is an amazing conversation I would love to have for years if I could with you. It's just a lot of great topics and, and it's just flowing and going and I'm looking at it and, and you're right. It, stuff's got to get watered down sometimes and that sucks. Like, what can you do to, you know, it's like progress is so incremental. When you look at the American story on race relations, you could say grass can grow faster, but, right. but there's a but there eventually eventually is what we're hoping for yeah right and i i'm going to tell you that i think eventually it's going to happen yeah. we are going to have these changes it's going to take time but we will have the changes and i, I look my my husband and my six black sons in the, <laughs> and i could not do this work had I, I i just can't look at them you know i i look at you know the story of sandra bland and i say to myself on any given day i could be an angry black woman with an attitude and I might say, you know, pop off in a negative way to an officer, but does, does that mean that my life should end? I look at my husband who goes to work and has worked his patootie off for his entire life. And if he were working to support his family, would he be like an Eric Gardner choked out on the sidewalk because he was trying to support you know, his family. I look at my kids and I can remember my oldest son who's now 27 and say to myself, you know, I remember when you were 16 and Trayvon Martin was murdered and I had to change his entire way that he moved and he did not like it. He was like, mom, you've given me these freedoms and liberties. And now you want to tell me that I have to check in at every place. I can't wear a hood in my neighborhood and I can't. 
yes, you can't do these things. And he rebelled because of, you know, our change and our rules for our household. But I couldn't allow his younger brothers to think that it was okay for them to grow up thinking that it was okay to be in places. Even though we live what is typically considered a very progressive city, there is this this little suburb of my urban Sacramento is is very laced in racism. It's embedded in who our city is, and so I, I just can't stand by, sit by, stand by, and, and wake up another day and say that you do you realize that the state of California, the state of Oregon, the state of Washington, even though they were free states. They perpetuated slavery because they they upheld the fugitive slave laws. That means that if a slave came to the state, that they would then send them back to, you know. I think about those, there were three um, brothers who discovered gold in the state of California. And when they discovered gold, they two of them were escaped slaves. One was a free slave and the slave master discovered that they were, got back to Texas, that they had discovered gold and were have made it rich. And that slave master came to California to collect his slave, even the one that wasn't a slave and then took all of their riches. You know, I think about all of those things. I think about Harriet Tubman and her perspective was, I can't save someone who doesn't want to be saved, but I'm not going back into that system of bondage for someone else. So I think about all of those things and, and it baffles my mind that we are living at a time where the common courtesy of humanity doesn't get an opportunity to be heard loud and clear. Because I think if people really and truly worked from a lens, spoke from a lens, protected from a lens of, I'm looking to protect you, then you know, we can't have progress. And so I had a guest on yesterday that I did a show with and they have an amazing thing. It's spiritual. And one of the things we talked about was love. Yeah. If we could have unconditional love. And she was saying like, if you're in a room and people are acting aggressive, just close your eyes for a minute and imagine sending them love like frequencies. And, it, and the reason I bring this up to you is as we're talking about all this, I like to end the interview on the message of love because I think that's just so pivotal. It's so important. And it's probably going to be one of those things that can help us at least bridge the gap, right? Between yeah. each other is not kumbaya, let's all sit in a circle and and, and you know sing a song, but let, let's let's start a dialogue and let's let's come together, but let's show love and respect to one another and let's have empathy and let's care about what is happening in our country. Let's care about race relations because we have to. Our children are too important, our future is too important, our system's too important. The good system. Yeah. The one that yeah. needs to be fixed. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And so when I hear everything you're describing, and I'll tell you this too, I learn from my interviews. I gain knowledge from every single person that I talk to. Yeah. And I think my, my audience does as well. And I think the fact that you came today and you're sharing everything in, in real time, it, it, it's, it's, it's so appreciated to me that you can come on. And you know, I'll be honest with you, we met through Podmatch. I looked on Podmatch. You know how long I had to look? to try to find a racism, inclusivity expert. You're the first person I found in a year. Wow. I've looked wow. on Google searches. I know they're out there, Yeah. but I've looked on Google searches. I, I've really been like one of those things that I've been so excited about. And, and, and I feel like you, I manifested you showing up because I was like, I really want somebody to come on my show. I really want to talk about critical race theory. And I really want to, and we got into so many deeper issues, which made me very excited about it. So I want to ask you one last question. Looking at right now where you're at, where do you see things going in the next 10 years based on your involvement 
in your local community and also across the country when it comes to these issues? You know, I, I'm always going to see, you know, I, I lead from a, a perspective of love too. And so the, um, the, the glass is always half full. You know, I wake up every day wanting to do things that are going to impact things for people who have less pr um, privilege than, than myself. And so I definitely think in the world of education, we are making very huge strides. You know, we have folks who are pushing back on critical race theory, but I think that there are so, the, the states that are pushing back so hard are going to, the, the, the barometer is going to be set so high in other states that they are going to be forced to have to catch up, right? We are, the exposure of racism in education, period, is going to have to change. Ethnic studies is going to be a part of that conversation where all kids K through 12 are exposed to some good degree or another of just a different perspective. I, I think that that is inevitable. I think that when we talk about employment and, and gaps in wage, um, that those things are starting to um, be conversations that are being had around boardrooms and will increase and, and just catch up systemically over the next 10 years. I think that right now when we're talking about politics and I don't want to get into the minutia of who's a Democrat and who's yeah. a Republican and where you fall in that regard. But I think that when we have conversations about, you know, withholding the vote or preventing people from voting and and those kind of conversations, the data and the statistics and the reality of the policy speaks loud and clear of what's happening when you're preventing people from voting. And so those things are going to be amplified and changed over you know, the next 10 years. So I'm extremely hopeful. I am hopeful because I know that these conversations are being had and people who are typically not, people who are typically oblivious to because of their privilege where they can go into their homes, shut their doors and they don't have to worry about the, the problems of the outside of their homes. Um, are now in spaces like this, a podcast that they can turn on and just listen to. And it doesn't, you know, change the physical dynamics around them. I think it changes the, the subconscious and the heart of them. And so have, being in these platforms is super important. And, and that I think is at the end of the day, it's the goal is that you are changing people's hearts and their minds um, just at the core. And, and if we can do that and have these conversations, <laughs> I'm here for it all day long. I am absolutely. Hey, look, we might have just had one of these amazing conversations that gets recorded for the podcast on my YouTube channel, and someone is going to watch this in the middle of, let's say, Mississippi or Kentucky or somewhere, Illinois, and they might get touched by our conversation, right? And they might start looking at things from a totally point of view, different point of view, and become an abolitionist. Let's absolutely. hope. Absolutely right. Right. I, I, I can let, me, let me just say this one last thing. And that is when we talk about blame and shame and erasing that factor and the fear factor, when we have these kind of conversations, yes, it's a challenge. Yes, it's scary. I realize those kind of things. But the truth of the matter is our ancestors, if your ancestors were white and they had privilege and power, you have some benefits generationally from that system that once was part of our um, structure in this country. Likewise, my ancestors, their story has prevented me in 2021 from having those same access to generational wealth. And so when we're talking about equity, when we're talking about bridging the divide, we I don't wanna take anything from you and the privilege that you've been benefited from 
based on where your ancestors were allowed to thrive and mine weren't. I'm just saying that I want my folks want to thrive too. And we can do that because there's enough resources for everyone. So just that lens of scarcity and deficit needs to go away. And we need to lean from lead from love and knowing that there's enough for all of us. And we're stronger together than we are divided and separated. So, hey, if we could put someone on the moon, I think we can right? get our system. I think we can set the set that set it straight let's just yeah. figure out we can do all these things we got to be willing to do it and, and roll up our sleeves um let me ask you this direct our audience where they can reach out to you absolutely you can find us on our website ascribe success a s c r i b e success.com or edifyhumanity.org. We have a nonprofit arm where we work with and do free programming for young people. This summer, we're doing a program on financial literacy. It's free to the families and the students who participate. At the end of the summer, each kid gets $100 to invest either in the stock market or start their own business. I think it's super cool. That's like my give back. I do I that, that every year, right? Um, we on social media, we are at ascribe success on Facebook and Instagram. So Great, I'll yes, add you. look us, look us up. I'll add you on Instagram as well. And, yeah. um, I, I want to thank you for coming on. This conversation was so amazing to me. I say that with a lot of my interviews, but to be honest with you, I really enjoyed this because of how heartfelt is the way I feel about it. I, Absolutely. I feel very empowered talking to you and it's Friday. Well, thank you. So, and feeling it's <laughs> Really empowered on a Friday evening or Friday afternoon. I'm dating our interview time for pre-recording. But look, you've done so much already. I I just take my hat off to you. I don't have a hat on. Figure speech. Um, it's my honor. I, I couldn't. I wouldn't. You know, be who I am and honoring myself if I you know didn't say that this didn't doesn't feel right in my spirit and not acting on it. Well, thank you. I just want to thank Sonia Lewis for coming on the show today. Uh, AscribeSuccess.com is her company website. As we discussed a very important conversation today, Sonia is a renowned anti-racism impact strategist. And I believe that the things that we discussed today highlights a lot about our society. There's a lot that we need to do to come together. If we can look to someone who was seven years old and stood up against her class in the Pledge of Allegiance because she didn't believe that liberty and justice was for all at that time, we can make a difference in our society today. One of the things I liked the most about my interview with Sonia today was, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, empowerment. We need to do empowering things for one another in order to deal with the scourge of racism and inequality and economic inadequacy, as I will call it. Uh, there's too many things we gotta do as a country and as a society to bring ourselves back up to where we need to be. And one of those important things that we need to look at is being authentic with ourselves. As a country, we need to be authentic. We need to look at things critically and, and, and really look at it for what it is, not from a lens of convenience, which so many of us have done over the years. And I say of us, I mean our society. If it's not something that isn't going to interrupt someone's schedule, uh, they don't wanna be bothered. But I'll say this, our society has to make the changes We've got to take the initiatives now and bring ourselves together to combat racism and inequality. And just as a dialogue, it's so important to speak out. And I'd rather have 300 million abolitionists than anyone who's complicit in the kind of stuff that we've been dealing with as a society. So check out 
ascribesuccess.com. Uh, check out, you can always email Sonia directly at ascribe.consulting at gmail.com. And I do think it's so important that we have these topics on because as we discussed, if we could reach some minds now, one at a time, change hearts, change minds, our society itself will improve and only good things will result. So until next time, look at this episode and try to have a dialogue with one another. People in your life, people you can talk to about it. Have a dialogue, you know, um, look at it critically. And if you can do anything from this, challenge yourself to try to have empathy for others. And you know who I mean when I say that. Have empathy, have a heart, show love. That's the building blocks of real change in our world. And stand up against hate in all its forms. Until next time, stay positive, because when you stay positive, everything's positive. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind. Embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.